0: Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the great gift of being able to study scripture together. And as we come together to study your holy word in the second chapter of the book of Daniel, we pray that we would learn something new about what it means to be faithful to you and to serve the kingdom of God. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's dive right in. Today, we're looking at Daniel chapter two, and we're going to break this into two different chunks. And this is about Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed such dreams that his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. So the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had such a dream that my spirit is troubled by the desire to understand it. The Chaldeans said to the king, in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will reveal the interpretation. The king answered, This is a public decree. If you do not tell me both the dream and the interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you do tell me the dream and the interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and the interpretation. They answered a second time. Let the king first tell his servants the dream and then we can give the interpretation. The king answered. I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you have seen that I firmly decree. If you do not tell me the dream, there is but one verdict for you. You have agreed to speak lying and misleading words to me until things take a turn. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you give me the interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king, there is no one on earth who can reveal what the king demands. In fact, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king is asking is too difficult, and no one can reveal it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with mortals. Because of this, the king flew into a violent rage, and he commanded all the wise men of Babylon to be destroyed. The decree was issued, and the wise men were about to be executed. And they look for Daniel and his companions to execute them. Then Daniel responded with prudence and discretion to Ariok, the king's chief executioner, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. He asked Ariok, the royal official, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Ariok then explained the matter to Daniel. So Daniel went in and requested that the king give him time And he would tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his home and informed his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So that Daniel and his companions with the rest of the wise men of Babylon might not perish. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, blessed be the name of God from age to age for wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons, disposes, deposes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have no understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and light dwells with him. To you, O God of my ancestors, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power and have now revealed to me what we asked of you, for you have revealed to us what the king ordered. Okay, so let's go ahead and stop there. That's the first half of Daniel chapter two. And I just want to name a few things. First, basically Nebuchadnezzar has a bad dream. He summons all of his wise men, enchanters, all the miracle workers, and basically says, you need to tell me what the dream was and the interpretation. And just to name the obvious, um, not only is this unreasonable, um, it is humanly impossible. And of course, that is the whole point of the chapter, that this is a humanly impossible task. And the fact that Daniel is going to be able to do this thing reveals that it is God in heaven who is at work. But just to kind of give you a metaphor, this would be like going to a psychic, Um, which to be very, very clear, as a priest, I do not recommend. This is not something that the Episcopal Church, you know, applauds. But if you were to go to a psychic and say, so what am I thinking now? What am I thinking now? Um, This is kind of what um, the King of Babylon is doing. He is giving the wise men a very impossible task. And it's like feast or famine. If you don't do it, you're going to be executed. If you do do it, You're going to receive lots of praise and honor. And so obviously they can't do it. And the king flies into a rage. And so he basically gets his chief executioner, a guy by the name of Ariok, to kind of go and follow through with what he said he was going to do. And just to kind of like let you know, it's possible that Nebuchadnezzar knew that he was being completely unreasonable. But we see in verse eight, right, the king answered, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see I have firmly decreed, you know, even in today's world, um, rulers tend to have a lot of pride and ego and they don't really like to go back on what they said they were going to do because it makes them look weak. But this was especially true in the time of ancient kings, like once a king said something, even if he knew it was the wrong move, there was too much shame and weakness involved in going back on your word. So it's very possible that Nebuchadnezzar was like, oh my gosh, I'm making a horrible mistake. I'm executing all these people for nothing. But because he had said it publicly, his shame and honor prevented him from going back on his word. And so he asked to get Ariok, the royal official who's the chief executioner. And, you know, I've never met a chief executioner, but I imagine these are not nice guys. Um, This is like the main hitman for the mob, um, that if your job, you know, I'm a priest, you're a lawyer, you're a teacher. What are you? I'm a chief executioner. This is kind of a down and dirty job. And we can imagine that Ariok has a pretty hardened soul. And so the fact that he responds to Daniel with such grace and such Willingness to work with him shows once again that Daniel is finding divine favor with these officials. In verse 14, we're told that Daniel responds with prudence and discretion. You may often hear me say in my sermons that um, the Bible doesn't really tell tales of moral heroes, rather, what we get are a bunch of failures who um, reveal our deep need for grace. But there are exceptions that prove the rule. And the book of Daniel is actually one of those exceptions that Daniel never really loses it. He's always faithful. He's always responding with prudence and discretion. We can't really find many good moral examples in the Bible if we look carefully. But if we were to look for one, Daniel would certainly be in the top five. Um, And so... What's really interesting, I think, is that Arioch gives Daniel the opportunity to go before the king. And again, this is just a continued pattern from the first chapter where the royal officials kind of put their own neck on the line in order to give Daniel a chance. I mean, think of this from Arioch's perspective, right? He has a place of power and honor with the king. His one job is to execute people when he's told But what does Ariok have to gain, really, by bringing Daniel before the king and saying, hey, I think this guy can do the impossible task. Because if Daniel can't, there's a chance that Ariok himself will fall under the king's displeasure and he himself be executed. And so we need to see how Ariok, the royal official, is really putting his own neck on the line in order to give Daniel this chance to go before the king. By the time we get to verse 17, it looks like Daniel is going to get his audience before King Nebuchadnezzar. He goes to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and says, Okay, we're going before the king. Your job is to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Again, because a big theme of the book of Daniel is that only the God in heaven can reveal mysteries. But I want you to pay attention to Daniel's prayer in verse 18. He says so that Daniel and his companions with the rest of the wise men of Babylon might not perish. And so notice Daniel, here he is in exile, and he's not just concerned with his own life or his Jewish brethren's life, but he's actually concerned with the pagan Babylonians who are his captors. He wants them to live too. And this is a theme in the Old Testament Uh, We see this most clearly in Jeremiah 29, 7, where God says to the people in exile, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your own welfare. And so here we have a really clear statement, not just from Jeremiah, but in the book of Daniel, where. Whenever we find ourselves in exile, you know, surrounded by people who are, quote, unquote, our conquerors or people who might not be friends of God on the outside, we are still to seek the welfare of the city where we are stationed. And um, unlike other places in the Old Testament where the people of Israel might not have a friendly view towards the pagans that surround them, here Daniel is praying that God might spare their life. And so I'm going to go ahead and stop there. Kind of the real meat of this chapter is in the second half, once we get to the dream and its interpretation. But I just want to hear what you have to say about that setup and see uh, what strikes you and what questions you have. Julie? You're on mute.
1: I'm wondering what the deal is with the Chaldeans, since they're put in this group with the magicians and... um, you know, these magic people, (laughs) I just have no idea who the Chaldeans were. Yeah.
0: And I never know how to pronounce it, Chaldeans, Chaldeans, but this is just uh, another name for Babylonians. And so this term Chaldeans is really just like a blanket term for anyone who's not covered because they're all Chaldeans. Uh, My understanding of the term is that um, this is just a, a blanket term for anyone who hangs out with the wise men, the sorcerers, the magicians. Basically, if you're in that camp, that word Chaldeans kind of covers everybody else.
2: Hmm.
3: My Catholic footnote says that the Chaldeans were, uh, in a narrow sense, were the sages of the Babylonian culture, and that it could be a broader term for several Semitic tribes who helped build the Babylonian empire. But in this use, it seems to be uh, the narrower understanding of the the sages of the empire.
0: So what I'm hearing Jackie say, which sounds about right to me, is that uh, it can be used in various places in the Bible. One is like a big blanket term, which is what I just said for kind of all the Babylonians. But sometimes the term is narrowed in just to refer to Babylonian sages. And from the context, the latter definition makes sense here, that these are the sages. Because obviously Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't just kill all of his own people. That would be very counterproductive.
3: And So, when Arioch is rounding up the wise men, I'm assuming that Daniel and his companions are in that group, even though they are not Chaldeans are not Babylonians but you know they're specifically hunted down so they were already considered wise men in the court
0: I think so we'd have, I mean well for first of all the clear implication here is that they are among the list to be executed right by virtue of what's happening so that's crystal clear but if we go back and read chapter 1 kind of at the end you know, it talks about how Daniel and his friends were gaining favor and they were the wisest of the wise. And so certainly I think the implication is that whatever their term is, I don't think they're considered sorcerers and magicians, but maybe they're wise men or something like that. But they're certainly included among the executed.
3: And I thought they were still kind of on probation, learning what they needed to learn to be part of the inner court or whatever but maybe they had already passed the test well that was and has there set such an impossible demand on his advisors
0: i mean i i don't i don't know uh and i welcome y'all's i mean all we have is the text i kind of have two angles from which i can i can answer that one is that I think that the dream was really that troubling. And once we get to the dream here in a bit for the second half, we can kind of see why the dream was so troubling. But I think the dream was really that troubling, right? Um, We also kind of get um, in verse, um, let's see, in verse eight, uh, the king says, I know with certainty that you were trying to gain time. Uh, One of the things we can also read into that is that, I mean, this is the day where like people just flatter the king. And, and I mean, part of the biblical understanding is that these magicians and sorcerers, much like the Egyptian sorcerers and magicians don't actually have any power. So one is that the king of Babylon, you know, like might actually know that these people can't actually do what they claim to do. I mean, they don't actually have any real power or magic. And maybe he's a little tired of being lied to and and fed flattery by people in the court. So that's another interpretation. But the other is that like, this is kind of what like madmen do when they're dictators. I mean, right? I mean, like, this is what we know from history that, uh, I, I mean, I can't speak to King Nebuchadnezzar's character, but I can say this was a world where when you're in charge, you know, you rule with power and you get your way. And sometimes, like the best way to make a statement is to execute a lot of people. And, um, you know, that still happens in the world today in some places uh, with some leaders who have that authority. Yeah, The
2: uh, Second sentence in this talks about his sleep had left him. He might've been also terribly sleep deprived and you do all
4: sorts of crazy things when you're sleep deprived.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that, 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 and that's just a, a scientific fact, right? You're more likely to do something insane when you're sleep deprived than when you've been, you know, well rested. That's a great angle.
1: say real quick, uh, in my Bible, the New International Version, instead of Chaldeans, it said astrologers. It didn't even say Chaldeans though
0: so that would be yeah that would be an that would be uh, uh an interpretation that assumes a second translation right that that would be an interpretation of like sages and so even though there's little chance that the hebrew says or the aramaic or whatever it is says astrologers that that's probably there uh, because they assume that the word called DN refers to that more narrow definition. They probably chose to translate it that way. All right. Well, let's go ahead because the real meets in the second half. Let me read the second half and then we'll we'll talk about that. So I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen here, and we'll see how this goes for Daniel. Therefore, Daniel went to Ariok, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon, and said, Do not destroy the wise men. Bring me in before the king, and I'll give the interpretation. Then Ariok quickly brought Daniel before the king and said, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who can tell the king the interpretation. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me the dream that I've seen and the interpretation? Daniel answered, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or uh, diviner can show the king the mystery that the king is asking, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has disclosed to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen at the end of days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed were these You were looking, O king, and lo was a great statue this statue was huge, its brilliance extraordinary. It was standing before you and its appearance was frightening. The head of that statue was of fine gold, its chest and arms were of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. As you looked on, a stone was cut not by human hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and broke them all into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the silver, the bronze, the gold were all broken in pieces, and they became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and to whose hand he has given human beings where they live, the wild animals of the field, the birds of the air, and whom he has established as ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the whole earth, and there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. Just as iron crushes and smashes everything, it shall crush and shatter all of these. But as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the strength of iron shall be in it, as you saw the iron mixed with clay. As the toes of the feet were part iron and part clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong, partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with clay, so will they mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall this kingdom be left to another people. It shall crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and this kingdom shall stand forever." Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain, not by hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has informed the king what shall be hereafter. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, worshipped Daniel, and commanded that a grain offering and incense be offered. The king said to Daniel, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. Okay. So really quickly, Ariok quickly brings Daniel before the king. And when I read it this time, I noticed how that adverb quickly really struck out to me. And I really imagine Ariok was kind of eager to do this. If he quickly brought him in, then Ariok might have felt a little um, not too happy about all the people he had to execute and was really hoping this would work. But here comes Daniel before ne- King Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar basically says, uh, can you tell me the dream and what it means? And Daniel says, no, I can't do that. But there is a God in heaven who can, and that God will speak through me and that God is about to tell you exactly what the dream is and exactly what it means. And so notice Daniel's confidence is one who speaks on behalf of God. And so basically The dream is that there's a great statue. It's a big, massive statue. It's got a gold head and silver arms and bronze thighs and legs that are made of both iron and clay. And then out of nowhere, there's a big stone that strikes the statue on the feet and basically breaks everything into pieces. You've got this statue made of different elements. And the stone breaks them up. That's the dream. And then Daniel says, here's the interpretation. Um, Daniel acknowledges by saying that the God of heaven has given the kingdom to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, the reason that's important is for Jews living in exile, what Daniel is essentially saying is that Nebuchadnezzar is ruling right now that Israel has been conquered as an act of God's providence, that Nebuchadnezzar's rule and the exile of Babylon is not an accident, it's not an oops, that it is the God of heaven who has given Nebuchadnezzar this authority, even the authority to carry the Israelites into exile. So that would have been a tough pill for everyone to swallow, but that is Daniel's message, that any authority, including that of Nebuchadnezzar, comes from God. But just as Nebuchadnezzar might be tempted to, you know, get really inflated and feel some pride about that, um, then we have like this stone that's going to crush the whole thing and these other kingdoms. And so essentially, Um, this dream is somewhat of an allegory. So the great statue, this is a series of worldly kingdoms. And we know from history that these kingdoms came one after the other, that after the Babylonians conquered uh, Israel, there was the Persians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Romans, Um, that kingdom after kingdom came, and the people of Israel had different overlords. and. What's really, really interesting about this dream, especially as we think about how people in the New Testament and first century would have read the book of Daniel, is the stone that strikes the statue, right? The stone that breaks all these kingdoms apart. So think about that, for instance, in light of Matthew 21, verses 43 through 44, where Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and this stone will crush anyone on whom it falls. So you better believe that Matthew, when writing this, had the book of Daniel in mind and Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Or take, for instance, 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter says, Come to him a living stone. Though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight, and like living stones, let yourself be built into a spiritual house. For it stands in scripture, see, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so from the very beginning, this idea of the stone that crushes these kingdoms uh, is all kind of tied to Jesus in the name of Christ in the New Testament. And I'm sure we can have some more conversation about that in a bit. But as for the dream itself, you've got a gold head, right? The gold head is worldly kingdom number one. This surely means Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. And so notice what Daniel says to the king. He basically says, you are scheduled for demolition soon, right? Like basically Daniel's message to the king is, You know, you're a great king. God has given you authority, but you're soon going to be crushed, and the arms of silver are next. The arms of silver are undoubtedly referring to Persia and King Cyrus, who will come in after Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and will show up in the book of Daniel. The thighs of bronze, most scholars think, would have been Greece, uh, because it was the Greeks who came in after the Persians. And again, the faithful Jews are living under all these different rulers from the Babylonian exile all the way to the time of Rome. So Greece would have been the next kingdom to come in. Uh, After that, we have the legs of iron and clay. Um, In terms of which kingdom this is, it probably depends on who's reading the book and at what time. So for instance, for some Jews reading the book, in the second century, the first century B.C., uh, this would have been interpreted as being Syria. And if you read the book of Maccabees, there's a a really kind of evil king, at least from the perspective of uh, the Jews at the time called uh, uh, um, Antich... I can't pronounce his name. Antichicus Epiphanes, uh, who reigned from 175 to 164 B.C., But of course, if you were reading this book in Jesus's day, the legs of iron and clay, right? The last one to fall before the kingdom that shall never be destroyed is set up would have been uh, Rome, right? Rome would have been the legs of iron and clay for first century Christians and first century Jews reading this text. But then we get like this lovely image Of Daniel saying, okay, all these worldly kingdoms are going to have their day in the sun, but they're also all going to fall. And then at the end of days, it's going to be this kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And this kingdom that shall never be destroyed is clearly a reference to the kingdom of God. This is not meant to be, you know, whoever conquers after Rome. This is not meant to be a worldly kingdom. This is meant to be the kingdom that cannot be destroyed. And so whenever we start the liturgy in the Episcopal Church, and I say, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then you say, blessed be God's kingdom now and forever, you are referring to this kingdom that cannot be destroyed that is tied to this mysterious stone that crushes the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. All right. That is a lot. And I'm going to stop talking and see what you think about this crazy dream and what it all means to you.
4: Direction. Um, No. Um, And this may not. Anyway, don't don't second guess. Um, And so what it evoked for me was that, you know, the stone it sort of reminded me of the stone tablets and that each of these, you know, you know, gold and bronze and a statue sort of reminded me of you know, perhaps the different idols of various kingdoms and that, you know, going back to Mosaic law, you know, can destroy, you know, is more powerful than these idols and it ultimately becomes you know the Mount Sinai for the world. You know that it, it 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 shares the faith. You know the faith is spread worldwide, which was the original um, commission of the Israelites. That's pretty far fetched.
0: Well, no, I mean I think I, I think it, it's imaginative, right? And I think that that's what we're invited to do is to kind of use our imagination to to really engage and to see, you know what's there and what this means. One thing I would say, and then Mary, I know you have a question is that, you know, tying this to the larger theme of Daniel, there's like this paradox here. So if you look at verse 31, Daniel begins and says, you were looking, O king and lo, there was a great statue. You know, Daniel doesn't have contempt for this. He said, this is a great statue. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're a great king. You know, and so um, Daniel is willing to serve in the king's court. You know, he he has uh, if, if he were if this were the United States, you know, Daniel works in the West Wing. Uh, he, he's kind of on the cabinet uh, and he says, look, this is a great statue. This is a great kingdom. You're a great king. You're a great president. But then he says, with the other hand, you're also not going to last very long. And a lot of people like you are going to come and go and you're not eternal." And so kind of part of like what's being held up here for us to consider is both the importance and the meaning and the place of all worldly kingdoms, all governments, all nations, all kings, all presidents, you know, all queens and kings. We pray for them. We pray for our presidents and the prayers of the people. They're all wonderful. And they're temporary, They come and they go. And there's this other kingdom behind them that will last forever. And so I want y'all to see that tension that's being held up of the place of worldly kingdoms and even God as the one who grants authority for worldly kingdoms to exist, coupled with their transitory and temporary nature. Uh, Mary, what were you gonna say? You had a comment.
1: Well, a question, um, yeah. so like I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm feeling like, okay, Daniel is finding favor in the in the court and he speaks as such. So like when you said he's a member of the cabinet, I feel like he's very smart. And it's, if, if you looked at it, he's, he's spinning. So he's keeping the King there as he comes through with the interpretation of the dream. All that to say though, he declares it to be trustworthy and he knows it is because he's got God telling him. But the response on either side, when you have these kings and people wanting and looking for dream sayers and to, to explain things to them, how does the king, how is that okay? Just like, okay, I got it.
0: Uh, on, on Nebuchadnezzar's part?
1: Yeah. And in general, yeah. Like, like, well, you well, give it an interpretation. What? How do you know it's the true one? Daniel knows well, it is. Is it because he's included Nebuchadnezzar? As being a great king given the power by God. I mean, is it well? That, I mean, I that's guess? a
0: great question. And I think that I think the reason that Nebuchadnezzar knows it's the truth is really for well, first of all, Daniel actually tells him what the dream is, right? So he's given this impossible task. Daniel doesn't say, Hey, give me a hint. Like, did it involve statues? Like, there's none of that. He says, This is the dream. And he doesn't even say, is that right? Then he goes, This is the interpretation. So that's that's a clear sign. But the other Mary. And this is what's so amazing is that what Daniel tells him is awful news, right? So if I were going to make this up, if I'm like trying to save my own neck, I'd say Nebuchadnezzar, uh, what the great statue means is that you're the best king ever. And there's going to be these other kingdoms coming and uh, you're going to crush them because you're so awesome. And no one's better than you, Nebuchadnezzar, and you're going to live forever. And then hope that Nebuchadnezzar is flattered and say, okay, I can now sleep. My anxiety is gone. And John, why don't you go ahead and be promoted in my kingdom? Because you gave me good news. But the news that Daniel gives is awful. He says, Your time's up, right? Like, I'm telling you the dream. You're a fine king, but someone else is going to come in, and Babylon's not going to live forever. And I think Daniel's willingness, not just to tell him the dream, but to tell him a truth that No one in their right mind would ever tell a powerful king like that in Nebuchadnezzar's day. Nebuchadnezzar has never had anyone tell him anything like that his whole life. And so to have Daniel look him in the eye and say, king, you're awesome. God's given you the authority. You probably got about 10 more years left and then Persia's coming in and they're going to crush you. I think that he was so overwhelmed, not just by Daniel's knowledge of the dream, but by his willingness to tell him the truth. I mean, we're told that he fell down and worshipped him. It's a very strange sin that he like he, he offered grain offerings. And, you know, Daniel probably just doesn't interrupt him because he's having such an odd moment. But like Nebuchadnezzar's response is so overwhelming. The only thing he can think to do is actually worship Daniel. That's what the text says.
1: Okay, and that that the one thing as you were recounting it that way, the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was unable to sleep was troubled was because of the dream, perhaps that told him also that it was bad news. And so he's, he's thankful to know what it is. And again, I think Daniel, it is bad news, but it's not the end of him.
0: I mean, but that's also a human. Have y'all ever had that experience where you're nervous about something and you don't know, and you just can't sleep. And then you get like really bad news, but oddly you're relieved because you're like, okay, now I know. Like, have y'all had that experience before? So that's kind of what's going on. Gail.
5: One of of the things, you know, you, you, you just touched on it. Um, he tells the dream. Daniel tells the dream. And then now we will tell the, the king its interpretation. Does that mean his three buddies? And then that's a question. But then I was struck by you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. I mean, that's almost like the doxology at the end of the Lord's Prayer, which I think is elsewhere. And I thought that was... Um, that just struck me.
0: As maybe being like a little like Nebuchadnezzar is being given a little bit too much credit here or too much oh, yeah. praise. I think,
5: that's one, I think that's one way that uh, Daniel's able to uh, help uh, Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar em, embrace him and, and, and believe him because he's giving him power. But just the thought that the doxology from the Lord's Prayer came from here or elsewhere in the Old Testament. I think it's somewhere else, but but I
0: don't know. Yeah. Well, so what I would say about, mm-hmm. um, the, we uh-huh. is that it's important that Daniel doesn't say I, because remember what he says, he says, no, I don't like, I, I don't know your dream. God in heaven knows your dream okay. and God in heaven okay. will speak through me. That part of like what's being emphasized is that Daniel is only a vessel. And so it would be inappropriate for him to say, I, Uh, But the other theme here is that Daniel is not just flattering Nebuchadnezzar when he says, God has given you uh, authority, that this really is uh, a theme of the book of Daniel, that all authority comes from God and that (laughs) worldly kings temporarily steward that authority. And it's also tied to Genesis chapter two, where God gives humanity dominion over the earth. And we can you know, have a conversation as to what that means uh, and the theological difference between dominion and domination. But we also see this whenever Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate and Pilate says, hey, don't you know that I have power to crucify you? And Jesus says something very similar. You would have no power over me unless it had been granted from God above. And Jesus in that same moment is saying something very similar to Daniel, where he says, all authority comes from God. You do have authority right now as a worldly king, but that authority is both limited and temporal in its scope and under the authority of this greater kingdom that can't be destroyed. Okay.
5: My
2: Bible had a note saying that we referred to all the friends because they prayed with him. He did not gain his wisdom by himself, but they were part of helping
1: him gain the wisdom from God.
0: I think that that is a, a fair uh, way of viewing it. It's not explicitly in the text, but I think that that you know, could reasonably be inferred. So I've posted a few questions in the chat for you to look at that I think are somewhat relevant to this. And if so, if y'all want to take a look at those and see if any of them resonate with you.
2: Thinking in today's situation with the past year of the pandemic and the recent freezing experience and how as difficult as these times have been and how our world as a whole seem to have reached a very high point of hate for others that the pandemic and the the recent freezing experience definitely does seem to have brought people out doing good Uh uh, uh, caring about others like they haven't appeared to care like others for a long time and It makes me wonder, you know, I know, I guess we don't say God caused the pandemic or even the freeze, but it does make, I guess maybe he's using it for good to hopefully end some of the hate that we're seeing in the world, uh, certainly at least in our country, um, that's been so prevalent. And maybe people will be more considerate of others and, and, you know, maybe the pendulum's kind of swinging back the other way toward a medium perhaps yeah just you know don't no basis for that thought just a thought that came to me but you know it's kind of like in in the dream when kingdoms are destroyed usually something is changed and you know is god going to use that change for good or not. I guess only history tells. But
0: Well, Diana, you know, I think that that's such a human, normal, and relevant comment, right? Because um, the wondering that you were doing with this is the wondering behind the book of Daniel of like, okay, remember the crisis that they've been conquered by the Babylonians. The question yeah. is, why did this happen? Now, we started in our first kind of you know, one of the interpretations, the reason we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 30 through 33 is because we have those blessings and curses of the covenant. You know, if you're faithful to the covenant, uh, you're going to live long in the land, but sorry, too bad. You're not going to be faithful to the covenant. Then this other nation's going to come in and swoop like an Eagle. But then if you're faithful again, I'll restore you, you know? So like one interpretation they had was, well, God allowed this because we were not faithful. Um, but that wasn't the only interpretation. The reason I shared that verse from the book of Jeremiah, it says, seek the welfare of the city in which you have been exiled, for in their welfare, you will find your own welfare. Notice that is mm. not like necessarily a contradiction to Deuteronomy, but it is a different interpretation that God is doing something larger where we are to seek the welfare where we wherever we happen to be. Yeah. You know the 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 trick th- this is what's so hard about theology is that the moment we open our mouth we have not said something true
5: <laughs> because the nature
0: <laughs> right the nature of mystery is that you can't articulate it so like whenever i preach a sermon nothing i say is fully true it's never fully true because again like the moment i i words are a pointer and hopefully I'm pointing you in the right direction. Uh, And certainly some people use words and they'll point you in the wrong direction, but even the best words, the best pointers are just pointing us towards a mystery. And so whenever we get to the whole conversation of God's providence, like we have these things that we have to hold together that language can't resolve. So on the one hand, I do think that we have to affirm somehow God's knowledge and allowance of some really, really uh, puzzling and hard things. Otherwise, um, you know, God's just not aware of anything. Right. God's not present. God's not knowledgeable. God's not um, all powerful. But on the other hand, if we're too quick to like iron out all the painful rough edges to say, well, you know, God caused the pandemic so that we can all learn our lessons so that we can make, you know, then we actually don't look at the experience uh, of senseless suffering from some people's perspective where people have died, where people are lonely, where their marriage has fallen apart. So. Uh, So we kind of have to like hold this tension of God knows, God allows, God grieves, God has a plan, and yet we can't open our mouth and say too much about what that is because God also weeps, heals, and is deeply compassionate with the suffering that we're all experiencing in the world. Jackie? Jackie?
2: I'm
3: going to state what seems to me the obvious answer to question two. If you're going to fall down and worship these people, Daniel and his friends, you're going to try to appease their God by heaping honors upon them and promoting them and, and hoping that their God notices what a good guy you were in recognizing them.
0: Yeah, so the question, if you're not looking, is, you know, why would Nebuchadnezzar fall down and worship Daniel and his friends? And uh, I think, Jack, what I'm hearing you say is, well, clearly the God of Israel, whoever their God is, uh, has a little bit of power. You know, unlike his own sorcerers, um, um, uh, Daniel's God can name what the dream is and tell you what it means. And So Nebuchadnezzar wants to be on that side. And if you read the book of Daniel— Um, which clearly we're going to do, that is where Nebuchadnezzar goes. One way or another, he uh, seeks to be on God's side. All right. Well, this was a really, really good discussion. And um, uh, I'm glad that we got to dive into Daniel chapter two today, and we'll pick up with chapter three next week.